We're going to look at verses 11 uh, to 25. If you want to follow along, uh, God's word says this. Uh, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of the Lord that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Hear this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. As the old saying goes, uh, the rubber meets the road, and that occurs for me usually on Thursday mornings. Uh, I've spent, in preparation for this coming week's sermon, I've spent usually from late Sunday evening to Wednesday wrestling with the upcoming text, uh, studying, circling, investigating. And then every Thursday morning, my goal is to have uh, my outline completed for Sunday, basically what you have there in uh, the bulletin. I'll then spend the next two days linking all the points and rise early Sunday morning to give it a once-over pray and prepare my heart to share what God has revealed to me through uh, His Word. Uh, By Thursday morning, usually, typically, in a normal week, I have a pretty good idea of where things uh, are headed. Uh, But this past Thursday was different. Uh, I continued to wrestle with the text, read a little bit more from outside sources, uh, generally, I finalize the sermon outside of the office so I can focus and concentrate. A coffee shop somewhere with good Wi-Fi, if you can find good Wi-Fi in this area. Uh, this last Thursday, I was at Panera, the new Panera up in Fern Creek, because the coffee is refillable, and so I can just I come in here in the afternoon after doing my sermon, I'm jazzed up and ready to go because I've had way too much caffeine. Uh, this last Thursday, my stomach turned in knots, not because of the coffee. But as I tried to figure out how to present this particular text to you, family, my mind focused heavily on the beginning part of sojourners and exiles, and obviously wrestling through what it means to submit to human institutions, as Peter says, in light of our cultural context. But Thursday morning, it just wasn't, it wasn't clicking. 
Then I read the last section of the passage over again. Panera Restaurant, when you go in there, uh, they give you those little buzzers, right? They're sitting on the, those are the loudest things on the face of the planet. I'm trying to concentrate. Panera Restaurant buzzers going off around me as I read again that last section of First Peter chapter two. My heart turned at the news of Jesus's suffering. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He himself, hear this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The dagger to my heart when I read that. The tears welled up. The ladies at the table across from me in Panera kind of were staring at the strange guy with all the Bibles and books and iPads sitting at the booth. Why is this guy crying in Panera? It surely, surely wasn't the bread bowl soup, right? The excitement hit. Here it is. The end of the passage is, is the beginning. And then the thoughts began to flow. This along, what I didn't tell you, was right before this, my stomach turning, I had texted a few of my staff members, would you please pray for me? I'm having a hard time with this passage this morning. And surely as I set that phone down and read through that passage one more time, the ending of chapter 2 hit my heart. What Christ has done. And so here we go. Our, our overarching heading for this morning is this. And then we're going to draw three points. We have our first point is Christ our example. Christ our Example, verses 18 to 25, Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, hear this, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then Peter points to Jesus. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. That's good news, church. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, hear this truth, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, hear this, by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so we begin this morning with Jesus as our example. It's because of his example that we've been called into a kingdom that is not of this present world system. Make no mistake about it, though. The kingdom of God is affecting the world system. But it's a kingdom that is, we would refer to it as, it's upside down. It doesn't make sense to the eyes of the, of the looking world. Why do we refer to it in this manner? Because our king, that is King Jesus, did not come as an earthly conqueror, but rather came suffering the greatest injustice the earth has ever witnessed. The perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, was put to death for the sins of his very enemies. 
Peter sets forth Christ as an example now for us to follow. And when he was treated unjustly, Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. A few takeaways. Jesus trusted, what this is saying is that Jesus trusted the plan of his father. Said that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't need to defend himself because his father will judge justly. He knew this, simply put, he knew that God the Father had things handled, had things under control. Jesus had confidence in the plan of his father. We then then receive in this passage the best news that we could ever imagine. You can't make this stuff up says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed, family. And not only are we healed by the wounds of Jesus, but it says that we were like stray sheep and that he has now brought us under his watchful care. He's brought us into his... uh, He oversees us. He's watching over us. And so now, because of Christ, our example, we can then back up to the beginning of this passage, and I believe it begins to make a little bit more sense. We can look back at the opening part so that our first point, we're going to draw three points from this today. Our first point is this, that we can combat the flesh. Because of Christ, our example, we can combat the flesh. The reality of our, of our current position is set forth. We, I've talked a lot about, about our position in Jesus over the last few weeks. Paul says in Colossians, I want to repeat, I want you guys to grab hold of this truth. It's, Paul says that he has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. We have that in Christ. And so we may be reconciled to Christ's kingdom, But Peter here says that we are sojourners and exiles in a place that is by and large hostile to God and his people. Moreover, we've been charged, Jesus has charged us with a mission to go therefore and make disciples. And so our mission is not to remove ourselves from the world, but to, in a sense, invade the world with the light of Christ. As such, Peter calls Christians to combat the flesh. If we look at verses 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, okay, I want to pause there on that word. I love the way that the English Standard Version renders this verse, Beloved. Okay, it's, it's a deep connection with his, Peter loves his people. Church, as a, your pastor, I love you. And I say these things to you from my heart. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Peter here gives us a command. We learned a few weeks, when you see the Bible command something, circle that thing. He says this very clearly, abstain from the passions of the flesh. These are obviously the sinful desires that still creep forth from within us all. We have been, as Peter said earlier in his book here, in his letter, he said that we have been born again. We know that that means that we are born again of God's Holy Spirit, and yet we still wage war against the flesh. Here is the reality, is that some of us, we might have that desire to remove ourselves from the world, but no amount of insulation from the outside world protects you from this, your sinful heart. Peter says it it wages, your flesh wages war against your soul. The challenge from Peter here is to war against your own sin so that the world, that when the world accuses you of evil, they will actually glorify the Lord. In a sense, they can find no wrongdoing because God's people are living drastically different lives from those who are in unbelief. The family of God looks far different from the onlooking world. That one day, I think, I'm going to put this to you in, in two ways. At the end, in verse 12, it says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There may be two things going on here. That one day, maybe those who are in unbelief, who are lost, who are presented with this distinct people who love each other well and who are sharing this good news about Jesus Christ... That they would, when, when the power of the Spirit comes upon them and the witness of God's people comes across their ears, that their, their hearts would be quickened to the goodness of God and they would give their lives to Jesus. Perhaps that's what Peter is getting at when he says, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. But also, I think this is going on. The day of visitation really in, in the Old Testament speaks of, of the end of all things, the day of judgment. And so, Peter may be saying here that even those outside of of Christ's loving care will still, this is according actually to the Word of God, those outside of Christ's loving care, even though they are under the judgment of God, they will do this. Paul says this in Philippians 2.10. He says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if we know this, Christians then, like Like Christ, we have to entrust ourselves to the Father, God, the one, it says, who judges justly. Galatians 5.24 says this, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Not only has Jesus bore our sins on the tree, but they have been crucified with him. Paul says it another way in Colossians 2, 14. He tells us this. He says, the record of our debt that was brought against us, it says, he took away, nailing it to the cross. One person amen that? Come on. 
Jesus did this. And so he calls upon you to live a life striving towards the position that he has already won for you at the cross. We do this by battling our own sinful desires through the power of the Spirit. Listen to these three things. We do this battling against our own sinful desires through the power of the Spirit. You're not alone. You don't wage this war on your own. This isn't a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps type of war. You have God's Holy Spirit that has indwelt you, empowering you, quickening your heart to His goodness. We battle against our sinful desires through the power of the Spirit, the instruction of the Word of God, and lastly, through the brotherhood, the fellowship of Christians coming together. One of our elders, Ron, wrote, a blog this last week about how we are stirring each other up. We are together battling the flesh together. It's, it's why we're family. We have each other's best interest at heart. And God has given us these powerful tools, the Spirit, His Word, and the family of Christ. And from the example of Christ and, and the combating of flesh, we have some very direct instructions now from Scripture on how to live in the world that brings us to our second point. We combat rebellion to authority. Or maybe you could put in there, we combat our own rebellion to authority. We combat rebellion to authority. A few questions arise as, as the rubber meets the road in the application of our faith now in the sphere of authority within our lives. We talked about spheres of authority, circles of authority that God has placed in our lives last week. And now we approach that topic of governmental authority and other human institutions in society. And so we come to these two questions. Where did these human institutions come from? Where did they emerge from? And who is ultimately the authority over these institutions? What's the answer to that question? God. Okay, really it boils down to this as we look to the way that we live our lives in our community and under these institutions. Do we, within our heart, believe, as Scripture teaches, that God is ultimately sovereign over all things? That he has placed these institutions and structures in place over us for our good. Peter says this in verses 13 to 18. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. I want you to hear this part right here. Sent by him. This is, this is the role of government. These two things. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. If we had to summarize the, the government's purpose, that's it right there. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Then he puts these quick bullet points in there. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Then he says servants, or the, the Greek word there is actually slaves. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Pastor Mark Dever, he's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., once said this. He said, almost any government is better than no government. 
Almost any government is better than no government. Why? Because government creates boundaries, rules, and generally operates for the betterment of its, of its citizens. Even in the most oppressive states, some authority is good for people, especially when compared to an absolute power vacuum. Okay? Anarchy is not a good thing. If you combine humanity's sinful inclinations and a lack of government, you have a recipe for absolute chaos. About uh, a little over a year ago, if you'll recall, there was a so-called autonomous zone created in the city of Seattle. And if you look at that, you'll find what actually happens in a power vacuum. These are statistics here. In the month that that zone was created, so from about the beginning of June to the beginning of July, crime rose in that specific area over the previous uh, same month, the previous year, 529%. According to a report from uh, the mayor's office of Seattle, 529%. So then the, the establishment of human institutions of governance is this. We know that it is a common grace of God. It's God's common grace for the good and welfare of all humanity that we would have authority that helps us and creates structure in our society to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so... We must combat then because of that, we must combat our internal rebellion towards authority that we often find within us. Simply put, give me an instruction or a prohibition and I want to go against it, right? You tell me I can only go 45 miles per hour and I really feel like I should go 50 instead. You tell me I can't have the cookie, I'm in there eating five. And if I'm honest, this was my internal struggle all week as I prepared this message. It was this question. Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about this? Stop. Hey, that, the outliers do not deconstruct the whole institution. The yeah, what abouts don't deconstruct God's instruction of his words to be subject to these institutions that he has placed over us for our good. And so simply put, to the best of your God-given, spirit-empowered, and scripture-fueled ability, be subject to the institutions that God has placed over you. Moreover, our, our, we also now need to look into our specific cultural context because the context is a little bit different from where Peter was. By God's grace, I believe that we live in a great nation, a place where we can let our voices be heard, where we can vote and we can influence. But also, regardless of, of the outcome, we are subject to those who are in leadership over us. And so I urge you as a, as a follower of Jesus, be involved in the political process, but don't let it consume you. Be informed, but turn off the TV every once in a while and read scripture instead. And by all means, I, I just most, the most practical thing that we can do is would, would you please get involved in local elections? Know who our local leaders are. The, we get so focused on the highest level of leadership. I'm guilty of this. 
And yet the ones that affect us the most are right here. I'm not ashamed to say this. A few weeks ago when I opened up that property tax bill, I was a little shocked. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be a little bit more involved in the local election process. I'm going to be opening up my ears a little bit more to where my money's being spent. So be involved. We also, with this command, we also must take the whole Bible into account when it comes to to what Peter is instructing here, because Peter had a little bit of a run-in with authority back in Acts chapter 4 and 5 that we can draw some wisdom from. You see, we, we are subject to human institutions, but, but when these human institutions are, are forcibly attempting to make you do something against God or against His will, then we must disobey and we must obey God. Peter himself explains this for us in Acts chapter 4. You see, John and Peter had been out preaching the gospel, and the government leaders, the, the religious leaders, they didn't like this very much. And so they told John and Peter to be quiet and stop talking about Jesus. John and Peter said this, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges, he said. And then later in Acts 5, 29, Peter says, Peter, the one who wrote these instructions, says, we must obey God rather than men. And so we strive to live under the human institutions that God has placed in authority over us unless they violate God's word and his instruction of his word. Someone tells you to stop preaching the gospel, you say, excuse me, I'm listening to him and not you. Simply put, combat your, your inward rebellion towards authority. We only have to go back to the Garden of Eden to, to know that we're just wired this way. Okay, we call this our sin nature. Adam and Eve, they had all the fruit, all the food available to them in the world except for one, and what did they do? I don't, did God really say that? Combat that inward rebellion towards authority. We must wage war against the passions of our flesh. One such passion is to push back against the authority that God has placed in our lives. And here's the reality. God has entrusted us with everything we need to discern when to obey authority and when authority has violated God's given boundaries. Those boundaries were what? Praise those who do good and punish those who do evil. The tools he's given us are these that we can discern. They sound really familiar. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us the instruction of his word. And he's given us the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the fellowship of believers, the family of God, that we may sharpen each other to understand this is something we need to take a stand on or this isn't. Lean, Christian, don't just be solo out there trying to discern things on your own. If it's a big enough issue, you need to seek the wisdom and counsel of the Spirit within you, His Word, and the instruction of other believers. Your church leadership, your elders, deacons, your staff leaders, we're here to help you and to help lead you. He's given us these tools. Lean into those powerful tools 
in your life. Combat the inward rebellion towards authority. And then, as Jesus did, trust that the Lord is the one who ultimately judges justly. What does that mean? God has it handled. He's going to take care of it. It's okay. Everything's going to be okay. Lastly, we are called to, number three, combat selfish desires. Combat selfish desires. We're going to really focus in on one verse in this last point. Verse 17. I love these little bullet points. When, when an apostle just gives you these little bullet points, man, pay attention. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Period, 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 period. I want to ask you a question. Point number three was combat selfish desires. Does this, do these four bullet points say one thing about you? They're all focusing you on people outside of you, right? It's instructive of you and of me in my relationship and how I interact with people outside of me. This is what it all boils down to. We want to focus on what I can get, how this benefits me. And Peter's saying here, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. He tells us this about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Heed the wisdom of God and his instruction. I get it. You know, your flesh turns within you, but the instruction is clear. When Peter says this, we're going to look at these four. He says, honor everyone. Okay, everything I went through and studied that word, everyone, you know what it means? Everyone. Jesus was challenged on what the greatest commandment was in, in all of Scripture. He said, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, I'm going to give you this one for free. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets are all summed up in these. Honor everyone. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. Don't you think Jesus could have just snapped his fingers and laid those people to waste? But in his love and kindness, he went to the cross and suffered the greatest injustice that has ever occurred in human history. Honor everyone. Christ, our example, honor everyone. The second one, he says, love the brotherhood. What does that mean? Love the family of God. Love the fellowship of believers. That's what he's meaning by the brotherhood. We are to love one another. I'm going to skip the third one and come back to it. Next, he says, honor the emperor. I want to explain who the emperor was, I believe, at the time of this writing. This emperor was one of the most detestable men that has ever walked on the face of this planet. His name was Nero. And what Nero did is he burned down his own city, and then he blamed it on Christians because they were kind of weird and no one really liked them. 
And so persecution began to break out in small pockets against Christians, including Nero, who would do this. He would take Christian men and women, and he would dip them in oil, and he would impale them on a stake in his garden, and he would light them to light his sick and disgusting and twisted garden parties. And yet here, Peter says, honor the emperor. Just remember that. We're different. We're distinct people. There are so many Christians. Why would God do that? Because there are so many Christians all throughout history who have suffered so well that those who have persecuted them were reconciled through their suffering because they suffered well. It's hard to read, but read through some of the classic writings about the early church and and the sufferings of the early martyrs and how they suffered well and the way that God used that to fuel the growth of the early church. As a matter of fact, look around the world. Anywhere where the church is extremely oppressed, it is growing like wildfire. And then lastly, he says, fear God. Fear God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. And remember the example of Jesus going to the end of 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 to 23. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Family, hear this. He bore our sins on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Paul says this in Romans 6. He says that you are no longer slaves to sin, but rather you are slaves to righteousness. Grab hold of this standing that we have found in Jesus. Wage war against the passions of the flesh. Hold fast to the Lord. Live peaceably among those in unbelief that on the, Lord, on the day of the Lord's visitation they may see your good deeds. This is what Peter says. They may see your good deeds and glorify 